Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Angle on Producers. As always, I am your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, I, I say this every episode, I know, but I am so grateful that you did and that you're tuning in and doing this life thing with me. The journey can often seem like a lonely one, but we don't have to be alone in that process. So I am grateful to everyone recently who's reached out over email or on Instagram to express how much the show helps them keep going when things do get tough. It's why I do it. And in turn, by reaching out, you inspire me to keep going as well. So it's it's a two-way street, this gratitude thing. It's pretty cool. If you don't already, please take a moment and subscribe to the show on Apple or YouTube. And also check out the newsletter. I'm going to be a little more consistent with that going forward as episodes will slow down. So if you want to hear from me, head over to Angle on Producers. There's a sign up link there or also on the IG bio. And we will be in touch more and more that way. Let's just get right into it. I am so thrilled to be sharing this chat with Joy Gorman-Weddles who is a partner at Anonymous Content, where her focus is YI Content, which stands for Youth Impact, Intention, and Inclusion. Born in Yonkers, Joy was raised by a single mother in a working class family who sent her very mixed messages about the arts growing up. Her mom was obsessed with the arts and leisure section of the New York Times, and so naturally, Joy gravitated to that very early on. Her early years in entertainment were spent at Miramax Films in New York City and at her own management and production entity where she sold her first pitches and scripts of now longtime collaborators out of her apartment. While at Bernard College of Columbia University, she sunk her teeth into producing with the 102nd Columbia Varsity Show written by fellow students Brian Yorkey and Tom Kitt. Subsequently, she helped shepherd their Pulitzer and Tony Award-winning musical Next to Normal to Broadway for over a decade. Having spent 14 years working closely with the legendary and late Steve Golan at Anonymous Content, Joy approaches filmmaking with the same honesty, devotion, and tenacity he exemplified. Now, for her credits, and I highly encourage you to read her full bio on the episode's page as it would take me a solid five minutes just to convey all the amazing things that she's done, and she's just getting started. Most notably, Joy Executive produced all four seasons of the hit Netflix Paramount series, 13 Reasons Why, created by Pulitzer and Tony Award-winning playwright Brian Yorkie. Yes, the same Brian I just mentioned a moment ago whom she met while at college. So this is your reminder to network across because your biggest collaborators are likely already in your ether. Released in 2017, 13 Reasons Why started a global conversation around teen suicide, bullying, and sexual violence. The first two seasons are still reported to be in the top 10 most watched Netflix series of all time. Joy also completed two seasons of Home Before Dark on Apple TV Plus starring Brooklyn Prince and Jim Sturgis. Joy really is a delight and she embodies some of my favorite qualities in a producer. She's tenacious, persistent, approachable, and very Italian. (laughs) If she had a memoir, it would be called Joy is a Lot of Pressure. During this hour, we tackle how the death of her mother altered the course of her career, if faking until you make it is actually good advice, and the huge risk she took when she left management behind while at Anonymous to produce. So without further ado, let's hear from Joy. I'm always excited to have any, everybody that I have on because I purposely choose who I want to have on. So it's like, I just want to hang out with them all the time. <laughs> but you're special in that usually when I do these, I'm meeting them for the first time. 
And so it's like a fun journey of like, I don't know what they're going to be like and what their vibe is going to be. But you and I went to coffee a couple months ago. And it was like, at least for me, I was like, I found my soulmate. And we just <laughs> yapped and yapped and yapped. And I loved everything about you. And I was like, I'm obsessed with this woman, my fellow Italian. Remember? And then you were like running late for a pitch meeting. I had to drive you home because yes. you were like, holy shit, I'm like running behind. I lost we track, lost track of, time of time because I was having so much fun with you. Yeah. I was like, this is the best date, non-date ever. I was like, can everything be like this? By the way... You're a good, you're a good omen because the pitch was pushed by 15 minutes. So I wasn't late and we sold it. Ah! So I love I'll that. never regret that we had the longest coffee in <laughs> history. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you are a delight of a human. And I mean, is that, do you think that's because your name is Joy? Do you think that like with a name like Joy... Does it carry weight that you have to be joyful? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I, I have a joke that I overuse where I say joy, it's a lot of pressure. You know, like, I'm like, if I had a memoir, I'd probably call it joy, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, but I'm also really honest and like, I get really mad and I get really, you know, like, I'm not great at being phony so I have to truly find joy in people and things and like try to see the best in things because when I don't you know <laughs> yeah yeah so I'm what do you what's honest. your secret how do you, what's your secret then how do you I mean working in this business you've been in it for 20 plus years we'll get to your beginning roots but like how do you sustain finding that joy through all of the bullshit um, I think, I think I, I'm, I'm a like total empath and I have a lot of compassion. And so, um, sometimes that's my Achilles heel is that like, I can find love, you know, for, um, for sometimes situations and people who like, maybe I shouldn't keep finding mm. <laughs> I have like a. Um, I have a lot of loyalty because I really do, I feel like you can look at a person and know that they've made mistakes, including yourself, you know, and see the best in that person and want that person to still be in your life because you know that like, even if they crossed you or betrayed you in another chapter that like they're different or that like, I believe very much that people do change and mm. sometimes I'm wrong. I mean, I've definitely gotten screwed over <laughs> a trillion times, but the upside <laughs> of that is that like, I have such a, I have like such a collection of incredible humans around me who, who did live up to the love that I gave them. Do you know what I mean? And that's one of the reasons I think I love meeting like, younger girls like you and like bonding with this next group of women coming up in our business and then you know because um I don't know it's exciting it's exciting to see the potential in people and to like I love loving people it sounds so corny but like I really <laughs> do like my mom was such an introvert and my sisters are too kind of and like I was always like 
I want my million friends with me everywhere I go. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I love my people. Like that's yeah. what And when we make shows, that's what it is. You pick these, you get to be the person that picks the people, that picks the best, coolest, most talented, most amazing people. And you learn from them and you hang out with them and you like make a play. Like, how could we be so lucky? It's the funnest job ever. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, but you you are a producer and you're also, well, at Anonymous, right? Like, you have this interesting hybrid of a position that you've carved for, out for yourself, which I want to get to. But now that you've been in this business as long as you have, how do you define a producer? And how do you feel like that definition may have changed from what you maybe thought or expected it was going to be when you set out to do it? What a great question. I probably have a too long answer, but, um, you no know, thing. I mean, when I first came upon the idea of like, what's a producer, I was in college making the varsity show at Columbia and I had seen this show that Brian Yorkey and Tom Kitt wrote and I was a little younger and had seen the show and thought like, oh my God, how do I get to be a part of that? And I auditioned and I got in and then the basically the way you stay involved in the varsity show is you volunteer to produce as a young alumni or as a senior, you know, and I was like, I don't really know what that means, but like, if I get to stay in the varsity show, then like, that's it. I'm doing this. And so I was like, yes, I will be the executive producer of the varsity show. Like, like really, I just knew it meant like getting resources and pulling people together and like helping them make stuff better. And like being a big sister, I was like, I'm good at that, you know? And Yorkie at the time ran the theater at Columbia um, called the Miller Theater. He was like a recent alum who was a year or two older than me. And I needed his help because we lost our writer. And he ended up kind of ghostwriting the show and like ghost directing the show. And he wouldn't take credit because he had just graduated. And so we had this, our first experience together, we're like as baby kid producer and writer director like when I was 21 years old, 20 years old. And it was, he told me, you give the greatest notes. You really bring out the best work in me. And you're going to be a big producer one day. I want you to take me with you. Like, and I have a card that he wrote me when we were like little babies. And I, he was such a big deal on campus because he had written all these varsity shows, you know, like he wrote one with Garcetti and like, um, and so to me, that was like, oh, so a producer is somebody who makes the writer, creator, like, think in, in a different way and like, feel seen and feel heard, and then gets them the resources, right, and protects their vision. And so that's really still when you get down to it, you know, you can also be a producer that finds the financing. You can also be, but that's part of bringing the resources, right? Like um, whether you're a rich guy writing a check who gets a credit or somebody, you know, like there are all different versions of what people call a producer, but the producer in the way that I see it is much like my mentor Steve Golden was, which is an ally to the central voice of the project, you know, who makes sure that they have the space and the resources to, to do their best work. 
Yeah, I think you nailed that answer. So the beginning, the beginning, why storytelling? Why filmmaking? I know you grew up in Yonkers. Yonkers. Um, Yonkers. Yonkers. How did you get exposed to to this crazy business? And what made you go, uh, in spite of your mother (laughs) not wanting you to? Well, she sent a very confusing mixed message, which was like, Obsessed with the arts, read the arts and leisure section of the New York Times every week, circle the Ninas in the Hirschfelds when I'm five years old, like on the cover of the arts and leisure section, get standing room tickets to every Broadway show, watch Turner classic movies, watch, you know, like always took me to, it's not cool anymore, but taking me to Woody Allen movies in the eighties when I was, you know, eight and nine years old was a cool thing back then. Um, You know, my mother made me obsessed with the arts, like, and she we didn't have very much and she was a single mom and, you know, kind of a working class upbringing, but she really, she was a big dreamer. She loved Sondheim. We listened to musicals. I like put on records and sang and danced around the room and listened to a chorus line. And, you know, so we were immersed like, you know, where other families were like rooting for the, 87 Mets and Lenny Dykstra like I was listening to you know Sondheim and Bob Fosse like that was I remember in third grade being asked like if you could have dinner with anybody you know who would it be and I was like and ranking like what like like I was like a theater kid you know like I was like a theater kid <laughs> And my mom's best friends were all these like fabulous gay musical theater guys in our community theater in Yonkers who were like <laughs> gorgeous and they smoked cigarettes and drank coffee in my ki- tiny little apartment in the kitchen. And I stayed up and sang and danced with them. So that's where the storytelling vibe I think came from. You know, my mother was also a painter. And one of my sisters is an actress and a dancer on Broadway. And the other sister was an artist and an engineer. So like everybody was like, had artistic talents. But I think when you grow up in a family where there's nothing to fall back on and you're going to definitely graduate college with a hundred thousand dollars of debt, your mother wants you to be an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor, especially this was the nineties, you know, it wasn't, we didn't have social media. We didn't have, exposure to like 7,000 different multi-hyphenates that could make money and be entrepreneurial. There were like a few paths, you know? And so, so my mother, when it came down to, okay, you're going to go to Barnard and you're going to get into a bunch of debt, you know, then you have to pick a path. That's not the business. So I wasn't allowed to study film or theater or anything or go to graduate school for film or theater. Um, And I had to kind of like figure out my way, you know, figure out what's a practical way of being in this business. And I think that's how I didn't pick writer or performer. I picked producer because I have that writer, performer, storyteller inside me, but I wanted to be the one that they could depend on and make sure Mm. that they have you know, that they could make their rent. And so could I, while we made plays, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Yep. I mean, so then after Columbia Varsity, the show, what happens next? Well, I worked in casting in New York. Um, my first internship was actually with 
Abby Bluestone, who's, you know, been an innovative artist now for a billion years. And she has, you know, Amanda Seyfried and Miles Heiser, who starred on 13 Reasons Why. And um, I was her intern in the kids department of like an <laughs> Um, then one of my mentors was Donna DeSetta, who was a big casting director in New York at the time. And she's buried at Peter's sister. And um, she kind of took me under her wing and she thought I was just really good at spotting talent and like explaining why a certain actor should have an audition and stuff. Um, mm. So she became a real mentor of mine. And also I loved that she could be my mother, like generations ahead of me and yet she was so like entrepreneurial for someone of her age you know and um Mm. I took this job that was like my I decided it was like my fake film school there was a guy named Richard Brown who taught at the new school in NYU and did these film classes for people and he one of my girlfriends from high school was working for him as his secretary assistant and he needed a talent booker so he needed somebody who could like call all these old movie stars reps and stuff and get them to come and speak at a class, you know, at basically a movie theater in Times Square, you know, or um, sometimes it was at NYU or something. And so through that, I got to do like all these Q&As, like it was like Brad Pitt with seven years in Tibet and like <laughs> Julia Roberts came with something like my best friend's wedding like something really like some classic Boston movies but I also got to meet these like old movie stars before they died like Van Johnson and Roddy McDowell like it was crazy the people he was friends with like I remember he used to book these cruises that I was like in charge of getting all the old people to go on the celebrity cruises and I remember Lloyd Bridges like really yelled at me one day on the phone and his wife made him call me back and apologize but it was like to me like I was raised by my grandparents like I love old people like I watched Jordan <laughs> Gracie like yeah getting to meet old movie stars was like the coolest you know and he had a show <laughs> on American movie classics where he interviewed like Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck and so that to me was like, oh, I'm getting film school. And I did that for a while until a job opened up at Miramax in New York. And that's that's where I was like, I'm on the road. I'm in the place to be. Didn't know it was run by a rapist at the time. Yeah, no one did at that Nobody time. Nobody did. Yeah. Um, but that was like 99. And I floated around Miramax for a while. Um I worked for the most part in post and I was the assistant to the head of post. And it's so funny because it's like the last job you wanted was post. And I learned so much. Like I love the cutting room. Like Dana Fox and I always say like, we just can't wait to get to the cutting room. Like we have so much fun in the cutting room. <laughs> like, and I'm so glad that I worked in post because it was so unglamorous at the time. But I mm. also. Is it glamorous now? I don't think so here's where I think it's glamorous (laughs) I think when you get to be the person in this like private dark room with your director and your editor and you guys get to try stuff and like your music supervisor throws you some ideas and you come up with songs and you like and you're like no it's this one split second of this look that makes you think she has no remorse. Cut away from that. 
and it changes the entire story of a pilot of an entire series like that yeah. blows my mind and I think the reason it blows my mind is ain't nobody that hates being alone in a dark room more than me like I used to say to my friends who were editors like that's the job I know I could never do because like you have to actually be alone in a dark room and it feels <laughs> ass do you know what I mean like it feels like piecing things together a lot but being the helper in that room is so much fun to me because like I think because I've gotten to watch people like John Chu or Loreen Scafaria, who I've been in those cutting rooms with, who are like watching how their brilliant little brains like work when they move stuff around and how they hate a note and rightfully so. And then you help each other interpret the note differently and like how much you can morph something into something that makes totally different sense it's just like you know it's like psychology and it's sociology and it's art and I don't know I love it it's a really remarkable part of the process that I think is often overlooked by many and I think there's a lot of mystique around what actually happens in posts I think most people just know the adage of like yeah we'll fix it in post but they don't really know what that means yeah or like the that I think it's so interesting a lot of the best directors that I've worked with we're editors first, because once you get to see the end product and you get to see what's missing, what doesn't work, why do we have 18 takes of one thing that you don't need? You got to, you get to sort of deconstruct the process from the end point and work backwards to make sure that if you're going to you know, be the director on a project, you're getting everything you need so that it's kind of cut together in your head there's already a, a cut in your head, even if you're going to find nuances that you could have never predicted, right? I think that's such a great like um, note and marker for for creatives listening because there are definitely people who listen who are not just producers and filmmakers also listen to the podcast a lot, which I love because I want them to know our plight. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. But now say as a producer, when you want to give somebody a break, you know, to direct their first episode like I always am I'm always excited about giving an editor that shot you know um Myron Kirstein who's like a genius brilliant editor um who's done incredible movies like in the heights and tick tick boom and crazy rich Asians but you know he was our editor on home before dark and he was so such 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 a brilliant creative partner to Dana and John and all of us that we made him a consulting producer. And then in season two, he directed um, an episode nice. and it was so fun. You know, it was his episode was beautiful. And like, who knows the characters better than the person who sat and looked at every single take and like moved everything every around. Single, for yeah. Every times. single frame. It's so interesting. Cause yeah, so much of an actor's performance is like made in the, in the cutting room. Right. And it's interesting how, there's been conversations I've been a part of, of like, not that I agree with the sentiment, but, you know, editors getting a piece of like an actor's best performance Academy Award, because in a way, some argue, well, it, without shaping certain moments, you really wouldn't have the magic that is conveyed. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I don't agree. If you're, if you're molding clay that's like, not great, you're not going to end up with a great product regardless. 
you know? I think those stories are usually anomalies where somebody who's miscast or maybe couldn't really handle a certain role or the actor and the director didn't communicate well enough that like you have to completely shape a, a, a performance out of nothing. I think that does happen, but yeah. for the most part, in terms of my own experience, like watching the bravery, the turmoil, the pain that these people will put themselves through like over and over and over again. Every take, you know, like the kids in 13 Reasons Why, Brooklyn Prince in Home Before Dark, Rose Byrne and Susan Sarandon in The Meddler, you know, Steve Carell and Kira Knightley in Seeking a Friend. When I think of, A, the magic that those directors brought, you know, to those folks, Tom McCarthy and Lorene and John, and, you know, um, that's one whole, like, emotional process that's magnificent to see there is like this raw bravery and generosity of spirit that an actor has to bring to the writer's words and the director's direction that is like really hard. It's like, yeah, that's so hard, you know? Yeah, it's really fascinating because a lot of people think oh, actors just say words like they just emote or they're, they're just lying because they're just pretending to feel a thing or, or whatnot. I've like, uh, with a background in acting, I've heard all variations of that, you know, and it's really fascinating to me because the kinds of people that seem to be able to truly access those parts of themselves in an honest way, like it's a private emotion that you're gonna, you have to go through in a public way, whether on a stage or in front of a crew. Like, it just takes a certain kind of human to do that. And I, I don't believe that, I think all of us are artists at heart, all of us are storytellers. But for some reason, some people just come equipped, like with the ability to access all those parts of themselves in a way that not everyone, everyone really can. And I mm -hmm. think that's really special. Watching Brooklyn, like who I didn't know her when she did Florida Project. She's incredible. And with Brooklyn, I mean, her mother's an incredible coach. You know, she had incredible coaches on set like Ben Perkins. And um, we we had amazing folks that support her. But she, her depth of understanding of humanity is absolutely unmatched. It like makes you believe in old souls. Like it makes you believe that she couldn't just be here for like seven, eight years. And yeah. And and in, immerse herself in a person and be the person in the way that she did. Like, it's just a, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's otherworldly to watch it, you know, to yeah. watch a little kid have that kind of access and understanding. And like, just to hear her talk to Dana or to John about a moment or a character, you know? Yeah. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. But coming back to you for a minute. So after Miramax, then you, is that when you go to Anonymous? At what point did that opportunity come, come knocking for you? So actually when I was at Miramax, an incredible opportunity came knocking, which was my bestie at work. We both had these like little yellow rain slickers and would run around delivering scripts together was a girl named Anne Biondi. And her dad at the time was Frank Biondi who ran Universal. And, um, and, she was like, why are you in this post job? 
she was like, you need to work in development with me. And we would like be pretend producers. And like, she introduced me to her dad um, and and mom. And like, they thought I was like a really smart kid who was like paying for my own college. And, you know, um, he was like, well, come out to LA with us on the Universal Jet. <laughs> That was my first time in LA. Oh I was my like, God. I think I'm gonna like it here. Um, <laughs> and he I he introduced me to like Michelle Manning, Deb Aquila, um, like hugely important people that like gave me advice. And I was like, oh, this must be what it feels like to be like a kid with access. I don't, this is crazy. Like, you know. Yeah. Um and then Anne uh, met her dad was become had become close to the producer on his lot who was Bob Simons and um, her dad introduced her to Bob and Bob and Anne ended up falling in love and he was a lot older than her but I would hang out with them and tell him like what comedians I loved because I used to cover comedy clubs when I worked in casting and like he was making all the Adam Sandler movies at the time. And they were like, move out to LA and work for me. Um, and so that was my big break. And I got to be, you know, an executive for Bob and made some crazy movies like Joe Dirt. Um, and Tracy Trench was my, um, was the president of production at the time. who's still like a big sister to me and so terrific. And Annie is still a close friend, but um you know, so that was kind of my move to LA big break. Um, and then when I was like figuring out, do I want to take the studio executive path? Like, that's what I really thought I would be doing. Um, I was at that time working, uh, Tom LaSalle had a company on his own way before he was managing at Three Arts. And he was like, we should manage, you know, like, you know, you develop all these scripts with all these young writers, like everybody's doing this management thing. And it was like, I knew guys out there doing that, but I didn't really totally understand what it was. I was really out here to produce and to develop material, but I realized that there were a lot of people who were like partners to the people they developed. Like I loved um, Dave Becky and Dave Minor. They were so cool, like the way they were developing Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. And I was watching people um, who were manager producers and saying, oh, like, that's like a smart, cool path. And I'm working on all these scripts of people that haven't sold anything yet. And I won't make any money unless I produce them, you know, so like maybe that makes sense. Um, and I was thinking about that. And then I you know, my, I was struck with like a family tragedy that kind of really threw me off my whole plan, which I was kind of meeting at DreamWorks and meeting at Paramount and was really going to just go and be a studio executive. Um, and my mom died very suddenly in an accident and it just changed the course of my life and career completely because I couldn't anymore a, in that particular year, I had a lot to deal with. My sisters and I figuring out, like, cleaning up that whole 
horrible disaster, but also like, you know, back then in 2002, you couldn't really talk about um, mental health (laughs) or healing or grief. It was like within six weeks, my boss thought I should just be fine and like back to it. And I couldn't. And really the only thing I could wake up for was reading Dana's scripts, reading Brian's scripts, like reading my friend's scripts and giving notes, like was like the only thing that I could like muster up the energy to do. I had to be around my people. I had to be, I couldn't really be on. Like when you're in that kind of grief and trauma, like, um, and Dana was the person she was with me when it happened. So she got on a plane with me. You know, so I had these friendships in the business that kept me aligned with my goal to be in the business. But that was like, had I been in a business where I wasn't developing with people I could trust and love, I don't know if I'd have stayed in the business. I think I might have just totally changed course at that point. And I think Hmm. at that point, I was like, you know what, I could go be a teacher in the Bronx and like have a great drama club and give back in that way. I don't have to be in the movie business. It was that moment where I felt like this wasn't the thing that defined me and I had to figure out a way to do it, but I didn't have to do it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And then the projects that I loved and the people that I loved stayed in my orbit and in my life. And I kept, and we kind of kept waking up for each other, you know, like, so I ended up like selling a big pitch with Brian and selling Dana's first movie. And like, it just made sense to stay on this like management track for a little while until I could get back to the producing. And that was when I met Steve Golan. Cause I was then like a young manager with kind of a hot list and, um, I said to him, well, I really came out here to be a producer and you're the only management company that's actually run by a producer and not a manager who became a producer. And Steve was a UPM and Steve was a first AD for like, you know, and I knew he said, well, if you work here, you can produce, like you'll be like, you can be a producer. And it only took a couple of years from when I got there um, that Lorreen Scafaria like chose us to produce seeking a friend and she was just my good friend she wasn't a client you know she was like a sister to me um and you know that's kind of how I stuck around at Anonymous for so long because there was no better teacher to teach you how to produce it was just like watching magic but he made it look like nothing you know like he just always made everything look so like simple he go it's a movie not a secret (laughs) I remember telling him like I didn't know how to talk to the DP about something you know and he was like you know what to say I was like no I literally don't know what to say like you have to tell me what I'm supposed to say it's my first movie I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to say do you know what I mean? he just the way he taught you was assuming you were his equal and you were like no I'm swear to god I'm not like you're kind of a genius and I'm kind of a kid <laughs> okay 
you know, but he taught all of us that. Like he taught yeah. all of us that if he could do it, anybody could do it. That was kind of how he approached the work. Um, I feel very lucky for that because he always told me that like, there's nothing that's like a stupid question because when you show people that you don't know something, but you ask the right people, like you just have the answer pretty quickly. And I think a lot of people in our business put on airs and pretend that they know what they're doing. And sometimes it works, but it works to a point. Right. You know? Right. Why do you think that is? Where do you think that comes from? Like, I can't imagine the business when it began, when telegrams were still around, you know, when it was a much smaller world. I can't imagine that that like worked because you, you kind of have to know your shit. And it seems like that facade or the, the adage of like faking it till you make it, which I absolutely hate. I, I hate the word fake because it implies dishonesty and I and, and mm-hmm. lack of integrity. And I don't. I've talked about this agnosium on the podcast. To me, it's not it's not about being fake. It's about like you have to project confidence and know when you're ready to leap for certain things because you know you have the the gumption to figure it out. And that's just like a personality trait. But to to be fake means you're lying your way through something. It's like people who put on their resumes that they were in 13 Reasons Why, and you go, oh, really? Like, I produced that. I, I don't remember ever hiring you. And it's because they were a background actor, <laughs> you know, on that show. It's worse when it's the people that are more powerful than you that are lying yes. and pretending that they that, But that's what I'm saying. That's, you know, I'll let any background actors, like, use a credit to get ahead. That's good for good on them. Like, if they showed up, <laughs> they showed up for a day, you let that kid have that goddamn credit. That's not an easy thing to do all day. Um, it's, it's very true that have everything and have all the money that like put, you know, put other people's work on their resumes that drive me really crazy. But that's another story. But I think mm. fake it till you make it. It's an interesting thing to look at. Right. I mean, I think the. I think the meaning of fake it till you make it is. Get in there and try and learn on the job. Don't wait till you know everything. To, to go after the thing that you want to do is like really what fake it till you make it is supposed to mean. Mm. And I think that in the wrong hands, in the hands of folks without integrity, they're going to fake it in a different way. But I do yeah. think that, that, that it does come back to having the humility and the self-awareness to ask questions like When we started 13 Reasons Why season one, it was so challenging. I can't even tell you, like, at the time, like, first of all, God bless the brilliant Tom McCarthy. He had just won an Oscar. So wherever he wanted to shoot, we were shooting, you know, and he picked the Bay Area in wine country, which is like the most expensive place in the universe. And nobody had shot there in God knows how long. And talk about fake it till you make it there were no crews that had sustained a television series. There was one crew that had done a show called, I think, Chase at Amazon or uh, Chance. I forgot what it was. It was a Hugh Laurie show. That, that there were no crews. There was nobody who understood the grind, who understood 
the schedule, who understood. I mean, we had, and here I was like living on set as a first time producer. I had to trust my line producer. I had to trust my physical production executive. I had, we were, we were with a brand new studio. Paramount TV was a brand new studio. We were not one of the first shows that got ordered. Everybody was new. Literally, it was a group of people, none of whom had ever made a TV show, really, except for Steve Golan. Like, you know, and Steve wasn't on set. You know, he was running a company at the time. He couldn't, you know. And, um, but you could fake it till you make it in that, like, Brian Yorkie ran theaters his whole life, you know? Like, talk about having to keep a budget. But we had to find and teach like grips who'd only done commercials like how to live in this lifestyle yeah especially for a a series it's very big big difference (laughs) yeah and there was a lot of there was a lot of struggle with the local union you know um I befriended the film commission I went (laughs) in San Francisco and like met with the you know the the union head like I did everything that I could made friends with senators with local congressmen like I just did everything that I could to make this place and when I say I I mean I was the executive producer doing that but it was me my line producer my physical production executive at Paramount but like I went out of my way to immerse myself in that world so that we could keep the crew and we could keep the show going and we could teach the crew. We had so much of our crew for the whole four seasons. Like so many people wrote us letters saying like, this was the job of a lifetime and changed their careers. And that was just so exciting. Yeah. The people that we meet in our journey who are above us or ahead of us, who who project that they know more than they do. And then for me, it was very eye-opening, humbling, and inspiring in some way to realize that a lot of the people that I put on pedestals or the people that I would be nervous to get on the phone with or the people I thought had all the answers and I was just like the wee, like, you know, servant in the beginning, how little they knew about the thing, especially the thing that I was doing in production was Mm -hmm. really eye-opening for me to, to go, wait, you don't know how to read a cost report? Like, you know, like little things. And it made me realize how many people get up to these levels of their career without ever having to touch these rungs of the ladder and without having to have certain parts of the, the knowledge. You know, you, you can just know your one little tiny slice of the pie and that's it. You don't really have to ever know the rest of it. And, and that's OK. I, it's funny. I'm still learning that because it's like, is that OK? I think it is because if you I, I felt like reading a budget was so hard for me. I had to be taught to read a cost report. You know, like I wanted to be taught. I wanted to understand it. Then I realized most executive producers were like not even being sent cost reports. And so I was like, what? Like it was, you know, there was, there was a different system on every show at every studio at every production company. right? And so, you know, for me, I just realized and Brian and I together both felt like, I felt like ultimately we have to stand behind this budget 
and I have to delegate a lot of the decision-making to a lot of different people, but namely my line producer. But if they decide to give a director a drone or a crane, and then my thing is over, then my episode's over budget, and what I end up having to do is, like, cut creative to make up for the thing, do you know what I'm saying? Then, like, then I'm not holistically being a good producer. So it's all about a balance of when can I let go? When can I delegate? When do I have to micromanage? And the fact is, you have to trust your line producer 1000%. And you have to have a line producer who's super creative, like you were when you were a line producer, you know? And Connie Dolphin, um, also, I had two incredible women, Jane Bartlemy and Barbara D'Alessandro on 13 Reasons Why, who I love. Um, and Connie Dolphin on Home Before Dark, we were going to get us, we were supposed to get a season three and she'd have been an executive producer on season three after only working with us for one season. Because the way that Connie thought ahead about creative and the way she thought ahead about saving because she knew and the question she asked, like, what house do you think you want to be in next year? What is, you know, like, how much do we want to be at the school and how much? Like the way she would think ahead about planning creatively was just not something I always had on every show, you know? Yeah. And I think that it's really important when you are picking a line producer and figuring out who that person is, that you can pick somebody who's not Pennywise pound foolish. Like I've been in a situation where a director was like, this person will step over a 20 to grab a penny, you know? And there's Mm. a lot of people like that in that role. And I never want my crew to be fear-based. I always want people to feel like we have to be rational. We have to be pragmatic. We have to serve the story and we can't go crazy, but we also have to feel like anything's possible, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, don't tell me there's no airplane, that looks like what she wrote. Like, just don't tell me that. Like, I'll just spend all night looking for fucking airplanes. And I will. Don't yeah. tell me no. Until you know you've shown me, like, all the reasons that it's a no. Do you know what I mean? Like, because yeah. I'll never go to my director and say no until I've tried everything. And it's like, if the studio is like, you can't have a giant football game. We're like... Yeah, we can, because we already have a bottle episode planned for nine, and we're borrowing a million dollars from that episode to have a giant football game. Thank you very much. Don't worry about us. We know what we're doing. Thanks, bye. Yeah. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. But I'm still not the best at reading a cost report. Do you know (laughs) what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I can read a cost report, but it's like not the thing I want to fucking do every day. No, but it's nobody's thing. Nobody loves reading cost reports. I use that as a fun example because it's very triggering for a lot of producers, myself included. I mean, look, it's it's one of those things that unless you have gone to an AFI or a school that really breaks things down, nobody really teaches you a lot of this stuff. I wasn't taught it. To your point, I learned by doing. I learned by asking questions. I learned by being annoying. I learned my first feature. I was a super 
supervisor. I had no business even looking at cost reports, but I had a producer above me who was really lovely and showed me and explained, you know, here's the budget and here's what we're spending and here's how hot cost works and here's why the cost report is important. Here's why we sit down on Fridays and we go over this with all the producers. And it was a really... Like that was my favorite takeaway from that entire experience of that project. And we worked with all kinds of fancy people and all kinds of things that to the outside world, they'll go, wow, you got to make a movie with blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but I got to learn about cost reports, you know? (laughs) Totally. Dude, when I learned what double ups were, I felt like I got a PhD. Okay. Like it was like block two of 13 reasons my line producer and my physical production executive were pushing for double ups which tell us what that is because i don't work in television so i don't oh, even okay. know what that is but i can sense so i go to my first ad who came off of ryan murphy shows Rough. ron ron who's amazing um ron rapiel everybody hire him he's a fucking genius um i go to ron and i go ron I just know the crew is really unhappy and they're all exhausted and none of them know how to make a TV show. What's a double up? And he explains to me, basically a double up is you get a swing crew that comes in and you use the stage and another set on the same day. So you shoot double, you have a couple of days at the end of each block where you shoot two different things at the same time and you save some money because you get some swing crew in there and you use a location and you use your set at the same time and it's a way to save, right? Like it's a way to get some, it's a way to get more done at once. It was so confusing to me. It was like a calculus problem. You know what I mean? Like learning. And what it sounded like to me was that I was going to be stretching the crew to a limit that didn't make sense, you know, doing just all the research and asking all the questions and calling all the people and calling Sarah Schechter and calling, you know, like calling my friends to be like, I don't know. Can you tell me what I should know or not know? Even Steve hadn't done double ups yet. He had only made true detective, you know what I mean? Like it was so early in the anonymous. So anyway, the point is I get so jazzed in that fake until you make it place when you actually really, really learn something. And it sounds like, yeah I think it's the best when you can be like to your point or when we started this conversation you know if you can be with a bunch of brilliant minds and creatives and people who bring all of themselves to the job and it's a new challenge that no one has ever really faced for whatever reasons and you can all kind of rally around it together there's such a cathartic sense of completion even if it is to find a plane or you know the, the craziest of things or the smallest of things there's such a a joy in feeling like I think it is addictive in that you can feel like well we can really do anything especially when you are backed into a corner right that budgetarily or the scheduling wise and you have to do the impossible in a short amount of time and when you pull it off in like three hours what someone thought you could never do I think it is really inspiring because it fills you with the sense of possibility that I personally am like addicted to and has really driven me in many areas of like who I am. And it's really shaped me. I I really say like I grew up in the trenches of production because in many ways it, it defined who in many ways who I am and the kind of person and the kind of producer and the kind of collaborator that I am now with with everybody regardless of whether or not I'm in physical production at the moment with this new role at Color Creative I still get to bring all of that sense of like possibility to conversations right from actually having done things 
in real time and seeing the miracle kind of happen. And I think Mm -hmm. that's different than sometimes being in rooms and talking about the thing or pitching the thing or theorizing on the thing. It's like, no, no, I've done the thing. I know it can be done in X, Y, Z ways. And um, I think that's a really, most people will say, oh, I want to be a creative producer. And I I think they don't really understand what that means. And to people listening, I, I always encourage anyone who has desire to become a producer to go learn all the different parts of the process, but especially learn physical production, learn line producing, even if it isn't where you eventually want to end up, because it's only going to make you stronger and sharper and be able to have those conversations. And ultimately, I believe that it makes the best when you get to just be a creative producer on a project, it's going to make you so much better of a producer because you have this like, this knowledge that no one else is necessarily going to have, especially if they've only come up on the development side, you know? I couldn't agree more. I also think there's only so much time in a life or a day. Yeah. And <laughs> there's I, also that. I, which is why I never go to PGA meetings. But when I did go to a PGA meeting <laughs> once, I suggested this. Maybe I think I talked to you about it at our coffee, but I think that there should be a below the line, above the line mentorship program. I think like I introduced you to my girlfriend, Deborah Bergman, like she ran TV production, physical production at Paramount Television. She was at Sony. Like I'm teaching her development and above the line. And she teaches me the physical production stuff. And like we're later in our careers or mid our careers or whatever. And we can always learn from the other person. And it's Mm -hmm. so much fun because she thinks I'm a genius and I think she's a genius, you know? And I'm like that with Connie too. And it's like part of what we love and why we produce is that we love making magic happen. We love proving that nothing's impossible, you know? And like we get a rush from, I think being the person who can solve the problem or being part of the group of people that can solve the problem is more yeah. what it is. Cause it's never, it's never really one. It's never really one person. Yeah. I love that. I want to switch gears for a little bit. One of the things I love to talk about on the show that I'm obsessed with is the challenges. I have been very vocal about my own struggles with anxiety and depression, especially when I was freelancing so much of my self-worth was tied to like whether I was getting hired or not, you know, in all totally. of terrible. And, and that's not to say I'm, I've curbed that. I'm still susceptible to all of those anxieties, uh, regardless of how high I climb in my career. But, you know, I'm always fascinated by how, how anyone manages to get through those downs, the down slumps of their career, because I know we all have them, the lulls. Many times I have contemplated leaving the business early on and being like, this can't, if this is as good as it's going to get, if, if this always going to be a version of this, but worse, like, is this really it for me? And now I'm more resolved in myself. I definitely feel like I'm where I'm, where I belong, but But all that to ask, you know, in those moments, and you can go as specific as, or as deep as you want, you know, or if there's a specific period of your life where you were in that challenge, like how did you get through it? The toughest time was right after I had my daughter. I felt like, so I was about to get a movie greenlit. I had just, I got pregnant while making Seeking a Friend. So it was like, I had just met my fiance. 
we had just gotten engaged. We were only together eight months and we found out we were pregnant. I was like, I don't even know how I did that. I've been in night shoots. Like, what is happening? Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I finally got a movie made. I finally have a capital P producer credit. Like, I took this long circuitous route, losing my mother, getting off track, like, focusing so much on management for so many years. I'm finally a real producer. And... I'm having a baby and it's like all I ever wanted was to have a baby. So how am I going to do both of these things? And then I realized having a baby, being a manager and producing all at the same time was like really, really hard. And I also realized like at that time, this is pre times up. My daughter's nine now. So this is like, it just felt like I even had a female client say to me, like when I said, but I came up with this idea with you, shouldn't I be a producer on it? She was like, what if you have a baby? Somebody said that to me. So I was like, what? I literally, my answer was, what if I get hit by a bus? Like, what? like I don't understand. What if I have a baby? So but she meant, well, she didn't, you know what I mean? I don't, yeah. um, she was much older than me and like of a different generation, you know? And, um, mm. but I realized when I looked around that everybody that was a manager and a producer at that time, meaning like their clients were giving them credits on projects that they put together, packaged, brought to them, helped them develop, were men. I couldn't put in name one lady manager who was producing with her clients. And I was like, I think I have to make myself a choice. I'm not going to manage anymore. And if you guys want to produce with me, that would be awesome. And that was a gigantic risk to take because nobody at Anonymous was doing that. It was not a popular choice because it's not, it's not really the business model at Anonymous or whatever. And Steve was not thrilled about it. And I just said to Steve, this is one of the hardest conversations we ever had. <laughs> but I said, look, like you were never a manager. I'm really unhappy. Like I'm going home to my little baby and my husband unhappy. I'm not even making a lot of money because I really do believe that the universe tells you like what, what you're supposed to, or your gut tells you. Like I wasn't in the right job. I was a good manager but it was actually a waste of what I could be doing. You shouldn't be a producing partner and only be like a person that goes and hands it over to somebody else. That's fancier. Like that doesn't make any sense. So it just didn't make sense. And I wasn't going to ever have a volume business. I couldn't be a manager with 40 clients because I was so like close with my clients or my friends. I talked to them a thousand times a day. They were my life. Like, and so I was never going to be, a manager who could make a ton of money by having 40 clients. I was never going to have more than 10 clients because that's not how I work. And that's because I should be having projects. I just shouldn't have, like, I just wasn't supposed to be a manager anymore. I was supposed to be an advocate for artists, but I wasn't supposed to be up all night worried that Christmas was coming and I couldn't get my friends staffed on a show. Like that wasn't enough to pay the rent to get people a staff writing job on the show. So it was like not 
it wasn't making sense because you needed a volume business for that to work. Mm. And I said to Steve, my contract's up in a few months. Like, I'm going to focus completely on producing. If you don't want me here as just a producer, I'll go find a job. And he was like, kind of yelled at me. And he was like, fine, but you know, what the hell are you doing? Producers can't make money. It was a really hard time. It was right before the big TV boom. Like he had just sold True Detective, but it wasn't like, there wasn't this much television going on. You know, Mm -hmm. he was just starting the TV business, but he was very, very proud of the meddler. Like he couldn't believe that Lorene and I put the money together for that movie and the cast that we got and that we made it for 3.25 and it looked like it was made for 15 and like all the in-kind stuff we got from like Apple and you know Beyonce giving us her song for like $10,000 I mean the stuff we did to make and I think he was like so proud of that movie we our bond hadn't closed on the movie yet I called him from the scout truck and I was like listen you know, we're going to lose Rose Byrne if we don't start production in six weeks. And like the bond's not going to close in six weeks. And can you cash flow this? And he was like, yes. And he had to basically Lorene's mom and Steve helped put the, the gap of money in for a few weeks And I go, okay, well, I won't sleep for four weeks, but, and he goes, you wanted to be a producer, (laughs) you know, and we made that movie and we got into Toronto and we got a standing ovation at the premiere and I was sitting next to Steve and when the lights went up, my phone rang and it was Netflix and they ordered 13 reasons why. And so it was like for six months, I was like, I might be failing at everything. I might be taking a crazy risk and Steve is mad about it. And I may not be doing the right thing. I don't have clients anymore and I don't have that 10%, but I have to do this and it worked. And I never looked back. I think what helped me make the decision was I had to really dig deep. And when I looked at my little baby girl, I was like, who do I want her to come home to? Like, who do I want her to say her mommy is, you know? And I really was thinking like, who am I? Like, who the fuck am I? Because I'm at this company where like, I don't make cool boy stuff like True Detective. Like, that's not my jam, you know? Like, I wasn't sure like how, you know, I fit into the brand, you know, like I wasn't sure. And, but yet Steve loved the stuff that I did do like next to normal. Like it was like premium smart things that include kids and include mental health and important issues. And, you know, like I'm just never going to make like a super male crime story. It's just not my jam, you know? Um, But I, realized like I went like I just dug deep and was like who am I who am I and I remembered like being in seventh grade and like growing up in Yonkers and being the first white girl on my bus and like wanting so badly for the girls to like me and getting not doing a good job of that you know and kind of being bullied for a while and realizing went home and watched Eyes on the Prize and 
I was like, oh my God, like nobody's teaching me this in school. Nobody's teaching me that the civil rights movement was only a couple of decades ago. And that like, I'm at a school that's 75% people of color and they're all going to hate me. (laughs) I don't know how (laughs) I'm going to do this. And I like watched Eyes on the Prize and it like gave me all of this like background of what was really happening in the world. And that was when it hit me. I want to make stuff that gives kids the tools to live in the world in a way that in their own community and in their own textbooks, they're not being given that those tools. That's what I want. And I want to like focus on ladies and giving them great jobs and people of color and like amplifying stories that matter. And, you know, I'm going to be really vocal about how diverse my writer's room needs to be. And this was all before it was like the cool thing to do. (laughs) So it was like, I remember somebody saying to me like, oh my God, did you just tell those agents that you're not hiring any more white people? And I said, yes. I mean, this was 2015. And she was like, I said, yes. And I sent them all the Melody Hobson, be colorblind, be color brave, not colorblind, um, TED talk because I was yeah. like you have to talk about this stuff you can't just like pretend that you can't yeah. hire more white people you have to explain why why do I need people of color in the room because this is a show about teenagers that's going to drop all over the world and they need to see themselves and it can't be all written by white dudes you know yeah. and that was how Brian Brian really really felt that way very strongly that like and all of our producers did was just about like is it okay to say that at the time you know what I mean well, I mean, I think that the legacy you've you've just begun to really shape for yourself and that you're going to leave behind is is very palpable and I think that I'm sure that your daughter now comes home to a mommy who is fulfilled, filled with joy and who is just <laughs> and who is just like doing the damn thing, you know? Like doing it with gusto, doing it with integrity and doing it with joy, which is maybe that would be your memoir doing it with joy um, <laughs> <laughs> because it's true I think it, for everything you've gone through it, you seem to me like a kind of person who like I said at the beginning you still have held on to this part of yourself that I think is your secret sauce that makes you so um, like makes people be so attracted to you and want to collaborate with you myself included and so like mm-hmm. I'm just so grateful to intersect with you at this moment and even capture a little bit of your story um, to to have here for, you know, a time capsule for whoever discovers this 10, 15, 20 years down the line. Um, okay, we have a quick lightning round. It's just a fun little way to wrap up the show. So here we go. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Halo by Beyonce. <laughs> What's the latest piece of art that moved you? A book, a film, TV show, etc. My daughter's drawing her anime drawings she's like really into anime and she's just like a really good little artist and she's only nine but her art just like pierces my soul it's beautiful okay fill in the blank when i'm overworked blank helps ease the stress rosé <laughs> sadly no. but also music just singing i sing so 
What is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. Worthwhile investments. It's kind of financial, but it's kind of spiritual. When I was like 30, I bought a duplex with my best girlfriend and we were both like sad that we were unmarried and we both went to Barnard together and we were going to like, we finally like had enough money to buy something. And it was like, why do I want to go buy a little condo and be alone? And we built this beautiful home together with all of our girlfriends. And we had these amazing Christmas parties and this wonderful life. And then we found these husbands on the internet and they six months apart, we found our husbands. They moved in and we had little girls two years apart. And our daughters were raised like sisters up until I moved into this house two years ago. So the girls lived in the same house until they were six and eight. Um, in each on one side of a two bedroom, one bath duplex and I still think there's a sitcom in it but I don't know I don't know it's like <laughs> Kate Sally I don't know it was unheard of that like two girls that are not related would buy property together I mean we had it for almost 15 years and she bought me out of it and now she's keeping it but like it's why I was able to buy it's why my husband and I were able to buy this beautiful house you know I love that Okay, so final question, and, and you'll probably love this. This is borrowing from Inside the Actor's Studio. The question, which is inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot, which he asked at the end, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Here's your mommy. <laughs> Just want to be with my mother and my grandmother and my niece. Yeah, I'm sure they're so proud of you up there. <laughs> I had to go make me cry. Oh my god, it reminds me of um, Sarah Jessica's was like she wanted to meet Matthew Broderick's father. It was so cute, it made me cry. But yeah, I just need my Italian matriarchs back. My aunt, <laughs> my mommy, and my grandma. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, like I said, taking the time for sharing a bit of yourself and your journey with me and the listeners. It's such a treat. Thank you. You're a treat and a joy. And I can't wait till we get to do stuff together with Color Creative, Denise and Talitha, who are my favorite girls ever. And you're just such a gem. So thank you for having me. This was really fun. Let's go have a two-hour coffee now. Bye. (laughs) But with wine. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. You can find the show at angleonproducers.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Beijos. <laughs>